Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. There it is. I hit one button and the magic begins. And nice. I got to tell you, I'm excited for this one. I'm stoked. Uh, the learning is real on this one. We are going to go down that rabbit hole of what? Of data analytics, data science. We neglect this too much. We need to learn this as marketers and sales. And the person I have on here is a data analytics and data science wizard, like straight up Jedi master level, um, often considered a veteran data analytics thought leader, translator, and methodologist. What does that mean? The translator is the idea of translating the data into actions, of understanding what it's telling you. He's going to be reading tea leaves for us on this thing and telling us how to do it because that's where the methodology comes from. So I'm stoked to learn from him. Formerly at large pharma research companies, now consultant to the stars. Who knows? Maybe you could even have him on your team. Ted Lorenzen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Casey. Uh, just one, one minor correction. I don't read tea leaves. I use goat entrails. Goat uh, and it's actually hard to dispose of them properly. So if anyone listening needs them for cooking or something, let me know. I'll uh, ship them up, mail them out. All right. Goat entrails. And we will link to the goat entrails in the show notes so that Absolutely. people can get those. Uh, I'm, <laughs> glad, I'm glad of all the things I said, I only messed up that. You're Tea yeah. leaves are hard to read, right? And you, which kind of tea? Who knows, right? Yeah, the type of cup you're in changes things. Oh it's really gosh, it's complicated. so many variables. Yeah. But let me do this. This is all about data science, understanding this um, data analytics. Let me pass you this. Oh, yeah, I know you got this. Okay. Oh my good lord! You go. You got it. Am I worthy? I think so. Oh, you got it. Okay, one handed. Right. That's like a backhanded grab of Thor's hammer. Okay, uh, take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of myth bogus strategy, misconception, set the record straight once and for all? Oh, man. I think uh, I think the biggest single idea people have wrong about analytics and marketing is that it's all about chasing ROI as the only goal. Like, it's all about efficiency, right? So that's just that's just completely false. Um, I'll expand that's on it later. Now when I... Basically, everyone started listening to this episode just so they could learn how to better track their ROI. So what... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh like what do i even do now what why why do people think this and what should they be thinking yeah uh well let me let me back up then and say roi is really important obviously okay. right uh roi is basically saying was it worth spending the money on the marketing or not well of course that's important but uh if you only chase roi you're going to lose out on some other important things marketing is doing right like uh you might say hey i did a great job my roi roi went up two times you know it was it was a dollar fifty now it's three bucks that's fantastic. That's a good job. But if you did that by cutting your marketing spend, well, now your business is probably selling less or you're getting fewer conversions, right? Did that help the business? Was that was that smart? I mean, in, in the world of, uh, you know, I'm either going to spend this money on marketing or I'm going to give this cash directly to my shareholders or my owners. I guess it was smart. I can keep the cash, right? right. Um, but in the general world of like real operating businesses, you know, you got to keep the sales high, right? So it's important to look at things through more than one lens. More than one lens. You know, it's a good call because, I mean, I, I'm guilty of this. I sort of, you know, if you obsess over ROI, but you're right. That's a percentage of what did you, you know, what did you spend? What did you get back? But you're right. If you, you cut the spending and you sold less, 
Yeah. Maybe the number ratio is better. Hey, look, look, we did better. Well, the whole company as a whole didn't do better. And, and we have to lay you off now, right? right. Or, or exactly. The company's going under because we actually, you know, you know what? Marketing spent $0 and we still got a few deals in. So hurrah, we have a 1,000% ROI and we all don't have jobs anymore. Like there's, That's exactly there's, it, yeah. there's more than one. And you called it a lens. You need to look at it from different lenses. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, um, a couple of those might be total total impact. You know, total total value created. So that'd be like I would call that effectiveness. How much did we move? Either how many conversions we got, or how much did we sell for this marketing spend is effectiveness, right? Um, ROI is a very important one. That's efficiency. For the same amount of spend, higher ROI means more effectiveness. But as you vary spend, that's not the case. Is what we just talked about. Uh, and then we can even get into non-sales related metrics. So you know, I come from a quantitative background. A lot of my work has been in uh, providing marketing the ammunition to go to the CFO and say, we need more money here. Here's what we can do with it. Right. So then sales is super important. But I think from a marketing perspective, you might also have some objectives that aren't directly related to sales. You know, you might do some upper funnel work. You might want awareness. Uh, you might want to build some brand equity in measurable ways. And the analytics, the same techniques that apply for ROI measurement can apply to those other concerns. Right. So you can actually have a, um, a multi-goal marketing program, and you can set up a measurement process for each goal in the program and track how effectively and how efficiently you're doing against all of those goals. So you don't need to, mm, analytics isn't just ROI. It's probably going to be where you come to analytics first, but then you can use the same methods and techniques to expand on all the other goals, you know? And um, if you're not doing that, you're leaving something on the table. Yeah. Yeah. You're so fixated. I, I imagine there's there's real value to be found from measuring the effect, effectiveness or the efficiencies of, of just campaigns in, in general, things you're doing, right? And closer to the, how would you say, it's almost like boiling down a couple layers. You're not looking at the overall picture, like right. individually, how are some of these different things? Where, where do you, I'm just rambling, but like, where do you find the most value? Like, help me understand, like, how, how do you even approach this? Uh, well, okay, so there's a couple of things, right? Um, some of the people I've in marketing I've worked with already have a very disciplined, structured set of goals. You know, I promised I was going to deliver an uptick in awareness. I promised I was going to deliver an uptick in, in travel to the website. I promised that sales were going to go up. Yeah. And so now they need, you know, that's a very clear case, right? Where we say, well, let's see how all the marketing tactics you're using are related to those metrics. And then I can say, well, within your budget, if you really allocate from this one that's performing poorly to that one that's performing better, you know, uh, awareness looks like it's going to go up. You're going to lose a little bit of website traffic. Is that trade-off worthwhile? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's like, uh, uh, the structure of the marketing program is already very management towards the goal oriented and the analytics then just put in the, when I build a scenario using quantitative models, I can tell you if you're going to meet your goal or not and how to get closer to it or how to exceed it. Right. But, you know, sometimes I work with people in marketing who are kind of like, ah, you know, they want to cut our budget and I just need some defense. Right. Uh, and that's when I would say, you know, ROI is a great place to start. Let's start with that single, single metric. Let me tell you the efficiency of what you did last year, what you did the year before that, you know, and then we'll move more in the direction of the good one and away from the direction of the bad one. And that'll help you. So it really comes down to the, the situation the marketer's working on, you know, how we're going to create the most value for them or ultimately for whoever the marketing is for. Right? Do you, do you, it's interesting. It's almost like you, two scenarios, two different levels of maturity in the marketing organization. It almost feels like the one that's doing defenses on the back foot. Well, I, one of the joys of being analytics instead of marketing proper is I'd be like, 
no, 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 I can always help you. But I agree. Like, I don't know why you would, I mean, think about any management problem, right? Like, uh, you know, recipes in the kitchen or anything, right? Like I want to know what I'm going to cook before I start cooking. I want to know what I want to taste like. So I know what to put in. Right. So, um, I do think that if, if you don't have that fundamental management discipline, you know, I think of as like, I might not know anything about a factory, but if I walk in and I don't know where each tool is supposed to go on the workbench, I know I can add some, some value to just putting the tape outline of the tools down. Right. So I think that structure, that framework should be there for marketing across the board, because I think that's how you should manage a process. But I don't have to, you know, people want to do it that way. Or if they're coming to an organization that hasn't already doing it that way, I don't have to tell them to, right? right <laughs> Fortunately. Yeah. No, I'm, where I'm going is like, I feel like I need to tell them to, because that, that second I, scenario was like, you're on the de- defense. Good luck. I mean, yeah. now you're trying to like fight for the last, you know, few nickels and dimes you have in the marketing budget versus the other one seems so much more forward looking like, okay it's like, where do you want to go? It's almost like the first one was like an investment in marketing. And the second one was like marketing as a cost center. I don't know if that, if I'm inventing that or if you, that's what you're seeing too. No, that, uh, that makes a ton of sense, right? Like um, on on that second case, you almost have this, we've always marketed and we're afraid of what will happen if we stop. We got Mm -hmm. these guys working for us. They do marketing. So I guess we should give them something to do. So here's some marketing, right? In the first case, it's like, we have carefully considered that we might spend this money here or elsewhere, and we know what we want out of that expenditure, right? I, I would like to think that most organizations are in that stage of maturity, but occasionally, you know, some, some aren't. I don't think so. it, that many are, but I think we all need <laughs> okay. it or we want to go there, you know? Like, I think I think most organizations are on the back foot with marketing, and maybe some of that's changing now with the tech we've got and some of the strategies and the revenue, one team, revenue team, and some of the things that are happening. But, you know, honestly, from the marketing side, when you shared those two. I was like, Oh, one of those triggered me from past experiences. And one of those was like, yes, I would like that. I want that. And only the best teams are, are the ones in that first scenario where they're actively deciding where to invest, knowing that each one is going to have some kind of result, but they won't actually optimize the result even. Well, and that, that's probably why I see a larger percentage of folks there, right? Cause you're not going to put budget in for analytics work. True. Unless you know you're missing a goal or worried you might miss a goal, right? It's rarer for someone to come to be like, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to accomplish, but please help me, you know, build this argument for more spend, right? That's that's less common. Interesting. Right, right. And so by even that selection, then they get more out of you. Like your value is so much more, uh, there's so much more value to you in an organization that is actively investing and trying to choose where to invest versus the back foot of like looking back looking backward tell us tell us something we don't know what the data says can you can you help us tell us what it says yeah yeah you know you're like you said literally go go kill the goat we have and tell us what's what's happening i'm like well uh, the entrails yeah the entrails right which you know then they never say anything about covid no matter how many i dig through (laughs) covid wasn't in any of the goats so goats were harmed uh, making this podcast so which so is the defensive, the past we're looking, is that like they've killed the goat and now you're sort of trying to sort through it versus... I mean, I killed the goat, right? Like that in these scenarios where I, I, there, I'm always the guy who's like, what data do you have? Uh, what are we trying to accomplish again? And they're like, ah, oh, no, I just, need, I just need you to do full analysis of the marketing mix. I'm like, well, but what are you trying? You know, I can do that, of course, but what do I, what questions are we trying to answer? Which really should come down to what decisions are you trying to make when we're done? Right. So if you already have the goal framework laid out, then we say, well, we're trying to we're trying to maximize what we get with these targets and either reduce the budget we're spending to get there or get the most we can for the budget we have. 
Mm -hmm. right? If you already have the goals laid out, it's pretty easy to come in and say, well, these are the decision points. Here's the ranges of available spend or like, you know, uh, um, some marketing is either on or off, right? If you, you have a contract with someone to do your CRM email, maybe that's, you know, I'm, I'm locked in for a year. There's no point in adjusting it. Tell me if they're doing a good or bad job. Okay. But for a lot of stuff, especially everything's digital, right? So yeah. uh, you can dial this stuff up and down in super fine grained increments in different parts of the country to different targets, right? Um, but there's no point in getting to that level of detail if you don't know what you're trying to do, which I mean, could be easy. I mean, I keep saying it over and over again. It could be as simple as, I got to hit my sales numbers for the year. I've got one quarter left to do it. Christmas has to be awesome. You know, help me make Christmas awesome. Well, okay, right. That's still a defined goal, you know? Interesting. So it just sounds like you've experienced both of these, the stated goal and the unstated mm -hmm. goal. What, um, it sounds like the unstated goal, I mean, it sounds like an almost impossible job of like, here's a bunch of data, solve the question, but there's no question. So then, uh, then you have to go try you know, to figure so out a question or? Yeah, sometimes, but usually, you know, you do the thing, right? So what have, I, what have I sold? I have been, I have sold that we are going to tell you what the ROI was on your past marketing. Okay. And then I can be like, look, here's your ROI. Now, I don't know, you know, they're not, if they're not making a decision based on that, they get zero value out of knowing their ROI. I shouldn't say zero value. There seems to be this effect of, you know, and you'll find this across different domains and analytics, not just marketing. You came in and, and, and we didn't know what was driving sales. And you told us. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, it's a model and there's some uh, confidence intervals and some, but, but the apparent certainty of 10% of sales was trend and 20% of sales was marketing and negative 5% was because your competitors started, right? Like they see those numbers on a page, they see a stacked bar chart. They're like, oh, now I understand. And people just plain like it. Now, if they don't make yeah. a decision because of it, there's no real business value. But people like it. So some really large companies will keep an analytics on marketing program running because it, they just feel confident that marketing is working without actually paying attention to adjusting their marketing as a result, right? Wild. Wild. It, so uh, it, it, it is. gives them comfort because it feels like it brings some order to the chaos. But they yeah. miss out on making some decisions based on it. Well, yeah. I mean, they're not really improving. They're not really using those analytics to drive efficiency or to increase their impact, either one, Right. But they do, they can see what happened. I mean, and I'll give you maybe a slightly more concrete example. Um, we've talked about how analytics seems like a dark art. Yeah. But, you know, a certain large percentage of the value my clients might get out of an analytics project is just like seeing two years in a row of advertising history. Yeah. You know, like, let's say you've been running, running the marketing for a brand for two years. Well, you're in the weeds all the time of like, what's the latest campaign? How's it doing? You know, your agencies are reporting, giving you maybe a monthly report and you're trying to compile all that. But, you know, truthfully, most agencies, people are in and out of there. You're not working with the same folks. No one's been there two years. Some marketing departments, no one's been there for a full two years. Right. And I come along and I get some old reports that were just sitting in an email and some stuff that like some Excel files lying around. And I just stitched together that time history. And I show you like business results against marketing spend for two years in a row, sometimes that by itself, people are like, oh, huh, I had no idea we spent more last year than this year. And I'm like, well, geez, uh, okay. Right, but so like, it doesn't have to be as complex. I mean, it can be very simple. And people, again, just, just from a, like, what is actually going on here? What's the visibility? You know, you, now they can see it, right? They can see yeah. the operation of marketing. Um, sometimes that just clarifies their questions for the next phase of analytics, you know? So that's great value to me as someone doing analytics. I would argue that uh, that's probably not a great state of affairs to the business, right? Because 
anyone should be able to stitch together three or four Excel files and get two years worth of marketing history. Uh, okay, because you're it still has value, but you're saying it's uh, it's not necessarily using an analytics team to its fullest capability by doing something so simple like that. I mean, look, you know, if everyone's busy and it just hasn't had the time, well, look, you hire extra help and they, they have the time, right? For sure. But uh, that's just the base, base level assembling the data and then displaying it in a consumable way. Um, and, and I don't want to devalue that. But I, I guess I'm saying if you're out there and you have that data around, you're just not taking the time. Look, spend three hours this weekend. Do your best. Stick it all in one Excel sheet so you can make one chart. Yeah. Right. And just take a look. Right. Because sometimes that reveals things you just didn't know. You, you can't react to them if you don't know about. God, you're like the data whisperer. Has anyone ever called you that? <laughs> That's, uh, n- no. Are you telling me I'm talking too quietly? No. Like, no I've been, uh, I've been, I've been a ninja before. Good. You know, <laughs> whisperer. I can be a whisperer. Maybe like, I'll get a flute. I can pied piper of data. It's like instead of a horse, you like go and you touch the data. <laughs> and then it hey, don't touch my data. Don't touch the data. <laughs> don't touch. Just listen to the data. So, yeah. okay. Um, so there's, there's that. So people need to come to the data, come to you with a question, with a, a goal of some kind, because then that makes, now you can take it to the next level. It's like, there's this sort of JV newbie level stuff where some people haven't even done that. Um, and it'd be, I don't say a waste, but you know, to come to you, like no, nothing stated in particular, there's more to it. So let's go to the more to it part. They come to you with a stated goal. Is there a collection of these stated goals? They should just pick one or is it, is it, is it enough to say, we want to grow by 30% next year? How, where do we invest it? Is that, is, like, yeah. is that a valid goal? And how do we come up with that goal? Like if you're talking to a marketer who needs to give you the, the best stated outcome that they're trying to solve that really, you know, an analytics person could take it and run with it. What's the best thing that, that I need to tell you? Yeah. Um, so, so I do want to back up or, 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 you know, it's not that people in analytics should be good at asking these questions. Right. Um, cool. And so it should be a facilitated discussion as opposed to like, okay. if you didn't present bullet list of goals and there's no way you can get value here. That's, that's not what I mean. But um, no, you're, okay, you're sitting there with wearing a robe with a hood on and you yes. have your arms crossed and your dark eyes, you're just waiting for them to say the right question. But until they do, you just sit there and you stare at them. Nothing, nothing. Head. And they only get they only get 10 chances and then lightning bolt comes out of my fingers and they they fly off the screen. I think yes. it's how Yes, it's yeah. like, what is your favorite color? And then they say it wrong and then they, they fall off the bridge or something. Yeah. Off the bridge. Okay, yeah, that's exactly the movie I was going to. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a discussion, right? So it's, it, but yeah. like, how do I best prepare for that discussion? I'm meeting with you. Um, by the way, in, I can't understand anyone not wanting to meet with you after hearing this broadcast and being like, oh, please help me. Um, so I'm meeting with you. How do I prepare on the marketing side? I have, and how do I prepare like the business questions and also to the, for the discussion and also how do I prepare the data? Maybe we start with like the, the business side of things. How do, what do I, should I prepare? You definitely should start with the business side of things because some business questions are going to require different data sets than others, right? Okay. Um, uh, we can talk about maintaining a constant ongoing database that's always updated. That's awesome. But that's definitely a far future state for a lot of people. So, uh, you know, those business questions are key. And I guess this is where we're talking about the maturity of the marketing organization before. Yeah. Right. Hopefully, before you sat down and like initiated any marketing effort at all, you know, sales were the key goal or, you know, we need more leads. 
our sales guys can flip these leads. That's no problem. But, but our funnel is empty. I need lead gen, right? Well, so really, hopefully the marketing department already has that list of business problems. And now they're going to say, okay, we've run lead gen before. We use these publishers. We use this kind of creative or, you know, however that worked. We bought the list from these folks. I don't know how to pick the best one. I have a feeling it's this one, right? Or, or I think I've actually maxed out uh, my prospecting on LinkedIn. What's my next best channel, right? So I guess my point is the business objectives probably come from outside of marketing, right? So that the CRO, the CMO, the VP of marketing should have that kind of like what we're going to accomplish in their head. And when they come to me, it should be that next level of, uh, okay, here's, you know, we've done a few of these in the past, which worked best or um, even easier from an analytics point of view is, you know, we've got great surround sound marketing. Everything's working great. It's so good. We just got another $50 million to do more marketing. Where should I put it? Right. So, so um, understanding the framing of, are we talking about building a campaign from scratch? Are we talking about taking the existing campaign and reallocating within it? Are we talking about uh, reducing the budget for next year? Because unfortunately it's been a rough year and we, we just want to try to get the most we can, but we've got to cut the budget 20 or 30%, right? I feel like that context does exist for most marketing teams. That's the starting point. And then we'll talk about what decisions you're going to make within that context, right? Um, you're going to stay on TV because you just got to, you need broad reach. And, and you know, if the CEO doesn't see the TV ads, he doesn't think marketing's happening. Well, hey, honestly, TV, I think is often a good idea if you're that kind of brand. Um, but uh, I'm not going to, as an analytics person, tell you the CEO's opinion doesn't count. Let's just follow the data, right? So, so understanding what's in and outside of the the decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a grand sports sponsorships. Another one for me. <laughs> it's very hard for me sometimes to analytically support sports sponsorship. But you know, if you got to have a place to take the guys when you're doing your sales, and it's got to be a box seat. I, I'm not. I can't tell you that's a bad idea. It's just a cost of doing business, right? Um, it's hard to check the ROI on that one. It, it really is, right? Like, how many people did you bring to the box? Did they eat the shrimp or just like, like what happened in the, you know? Um, anyway, so uh, that's, I guess, it is always, it always, always going down the layers. First layer, what does the business need? Second layer, what levers are you allowed to pull on? And then we'll say, okay, for each of those levers, we need historical data if it exists, or we need a proxy, right? Uh, so, so, um, Let's say somebody's getting into Facebook. No, better yet. Someone's going to do Snap for the first time, right? Oh, I hear Snapchat? those young kids are on Snap. Yeah. Well, do they still call it Snapchat or Snap the company and Snapchat's the platform? It could be Snap. See, I could be even, even more dated, but but now we're really into TikTok though. So we should- update. Oh, you're right. It's TikTok. So someone's realized they've got to move to TikTok. Um, all right. Sorry. Brief, brief interlude. No it joke. It sounds like a terrible I, idea, but you go ahead. No, it's going to be great because the president's totally going to let people download it. Um, right. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Uh, so, so I did have a client who uh, was like, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna advertise on Vines," four or five years ago. Okay. And I'm like, I what what's Vines? Like, what are you talking about?" And I had to go download Vines. Vines lasted like a year later, even though people were spending marketing money on it. So anyway, um, do you remember Vines? It was like eight second yeah, videos I it was or something. Vine is it plural or is it singular? Oh man, I, it might well be. It might well be singular. No, it's, it's but singular, you know, it's Vine. But you're right. I could see the president be like, "I heard about this Vines thing from my preteen. Can we can we look into that?" <laughs> right, like, so, oh. so as an example, no one's advertised on Vine. No one's advertised on Vine before. And you want to know what to do there? I'm going to say, well, it's probably going to work something like Facebook, I guess. We'll use that as a proxy. So that's the proxy situation. Okay. Right? And then, like, hopefully most of the you're looking at is up or down on existing channels or is existing tactics. 
and it'll say, you know, I need all the activity that you did on those old tactics. And then I need the the business KPI that we're looking to drive, which typically is going to be sales, but it could be conversions or leads, awareness, any of the other metrics, you know, goals we've talked about, right? Um, And that's where that data gathering, that's how easy it is to go from the business questions to data gathering, right? Literally for each of the possible levers, we say we need a data set that covers or includes the activity for that lever in the past or a proxy. Have you seen The Accountant, that movie? Uh, yeah, it was it was it was fun. Do you relate to it, it in any way? Oh, uh, come on, man! What are you trying to say? Uh, well, two <laughs> things about that. One, have you ever tried to condition your shin with a small stick of wood? Hell no to that. <laughs> <laughs> My shins are very tender, and at watching that scene, I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> what, what is that? Is it just a? hurt your shins or is that so he can kick people in the face or something i mean i you know like i've known some kyokushin guys uh it's like kyokushin folk you know karate guys uh who like break the baseball bat right like they can kick through the baseball bat but even they don't like you know rub their shins up and down with a hard object i I don't know i mm, um worse is like rubbing your it band or maybe maybe just as bad rolling that out yeah that's uh mm. so okay so you relate to the accountant so, because I see a little bit, like a little having bit. this data with people, they lock you in a conference room and you're just writing stuff down on a wall. How, yeah. how, where does it proceed from there? What happens? They give you all this data. Yeah. Uh, so we we pull it together, we pull it together, and we pool it. Um, there's a there's a cleaning phase. Nobody has clean data. People swear up and down they have clean data. I just worked with a vendor last year. I'm going to give you the same data set. It still has something wrong with it. Um, so we go and find those problems. You know, there's stuff like, oh, this is weekly data, but you're missing these three weeks and nobody knows why. Or yeah. it's in Excel and the dates revert to 1900 down here and nobody knows why, right? So that's that's a lot of effort, right? right? But it's okay. That's just like, it, it, you know, it's like cleaning up uh, before you paint, right? You got to scrape the surface down. You got to prepare the surface. If you don't, the paint's going to fall back off. But, you know, you got to do it, right? And it's, yeah. it's okay. Um, so you take care of that stuff. Uh, you know, and you make a big pool of data and then you start thinking about how am I going to analyze this, right? What methods am I going to use? And that's really, you know, uh, it's okay to have a method determined ahead of time, have a favorite, but that's where you might want to engage a, uh, a seasoned professional, shall we say, um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, so, you know, data prep, making the data clean is literally like, Hey, this looks funny. Let me fix it. It's right. it's work and experience helps, but there's no deep learning there, right? You just do it. Um, but when it comes to methods, you can run into some weirdnesses. Uh, so we just talked about this case where this is all retrospective data, right? Everything I'm talking about is I want to pull all my old data together and learn what I can from it. And whenever you're doing that, you're running the risk that everything you find might be a spurious result, right? But which I mean, um, uh, you know, I ran the new Facebook campaign mm-hmm. and my sales went up 20%. The Facebook campaign was amazing. Like, well, yeah, maybe, but, but, but maybe you're also selling um, pumpkin spice and pumpkin spice latte season. You ran your Facebook campaign, right? As fall kicked in and uh, you know, perhaps we need to de- detangle the seasonality from, from the campaign itself. Sure. Right. Sure. So um, knowing your, the ins and outs of those kinds of problems, that, that's what someone with a, quote, advanced analytics background can do for you, uh, including, say, frankly, this is something that we can't determine using retrospective data. We need to design experiments looking forward to figure out what happened here or what best to do. You know, honestly, I could see someone, especially the way you even said earlier, like, hey, you know, not 
technically in the marketing team, you're in the analytics team. So being a third party, if you will, allows you to not really, people maybe look at that data. They really want their Facebook to be successful. You know, I really yeah. want this campaign. I worked hard on it. I hope it shows me lots of leads and maybe it shows you nothing, but they really want it to show you something. And so I could see having a third party look at it gets rid of some of that bias where we're just, we want our babies to do well. Yeah. And uh, not just that kind of unconscious bias, but, but also um, maybe, maybe uh, there's some more concrete biases that creep into yeah. uh, where your agency thinks that you haven't broken through with your level yet because they want to charge you a little extra mm. or uh, maybe, um, you know, you've got it, you've, you have the kind of marketing team where someone does traditional media and someone does digital and there's always a clash of like, where should we spend the money, you know, broader reach or more targeted, which is more efficient. Uh, yeah. So, so having quantitative numbers there, hopefully as unbiasedly as possible, right? It is a third party and I'm not going to tell you the analytical methods will get to the absolute truth every time. But if you're using similar methods on similarly collected data over time, your decision-making process is going to be consistent. Okay. And you'll be able to look back at the, the uh, business results. And if they're not following what the analytics said they would, you know, then you know the analytics aren't right, right? Whereas if you're just having an argument about it amongst people, whoever is most persuasive might win. Mm. Whoever owns the biggest part of the budget and really wants their baby to win might win. Um, and I mean, I say that as someone who suffers from that. If I didn't invent it, I, I really distrust it, right? So I, I've had to learn to work around that myself. Right. So I, if I was in marketing directly and I ran that Facebook campaign, you better believe it's going to be the best thing you've ever seen. And, and I'm going to need some real solid evidence to believe it's not working. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Prove me wrong. You have one of the little tables in the park. Yeah. My, my campaign is <laughs> the best. Prove me wrong. <laughs> um, oh, OK, so, you know, for a second, I'm thinking like, wow, when you started a business issue, it isn't so complicated. It's simple. You're answering a question. It sounds like the complication comes in now when you're talking about how to analyze. And that's where they bring someone like you in to even ask the question like, have we factored in seasonality? Have you done this Facebook campaign when it's the dead of winter? Have you done it in the summer? You know, have yeah. we eliminated those factors? Anything else happen? Are there, are there too many factors? Or are you able to at some point get a pretty good confidence that some of these things, like how, how, how confident can you get? Uh, well, very, very confident if you follow a couple key steps. And again, there's, there's really two sorts of situations. Facebook, we were just talking about. You should run experiments on Facebook. It's built into the API. Hmm. You know, through their tools and interfaces, you can let Facebook design the experiment and report the results to you. Okay. And frankly, I mean, again, you want to under interpret that. You want to understand that. You want to integrate that in with your other marketing levers. You need someone with a lot of analytics experience who's done that before right? Uh, it'll go faster that way. And they can teach you how it works and how it integrates, how to think about it. But if you are, um, you know, a small company, uh, you know, selling home workout programs because COVID's got everybody at home and you can let Facebook run that for you. Is retargeting making sense? Let's find out. Right. And you should hundred percent be doing that. Uh, I understand that there's some concern, you know, when you do that, your control group uh, isn't getting an ad and you're still paying for ad placement. It might feel like wasted money. But when you're done, you're going to know mm. if you dial up your, your uh, reach that you're really getting some impact there or that you weren't. You should need to go back to the, the drawing board and redesign something creative or targeting. Right. Gotcha. Um, so you can actually te like test. To, and I get it. They're kind of getting paid for free. 
for free for a little bit, but at least you'll know that it's it's not this. It, like it's a placebo or something. It's or some other factor, and then you could stop doing that. So as opposed to spend all year and never did a test like this, and you, you you're still convinced, but you're just wondering why the sales aren't happening because you didn't do the yeah. test. You're like, I'm remarketing like crazy. This is supposed to be super effective. People went to my squeeze page and didn't sign up. And they, and then it turns out that it's like, well, you're, you're remarketing, but it's always going to people who've already bought your product. <laughs> Oops. And, um, you know, so you're not getting any lift out of that. Well, why wait until you're in and you're short on your revenue calls, right? Do the yeah. experiment up front, run it for two weeks or three weeks, analyze it, and then trust it. Um, so that's uh, in the digital sphere, you know, Facebook makes it easy. Um, Google, Google, uh, is, is almost as easy. Um, you know, you might have some more trouble, some other publishers, uh, but you can still do that work. And again, someone can design an experiment for you without using those tools. that will have the same amount of analytical validity. When you do experiments, you, uh, if they're properly designed, you remove a lot of that seasonality question. Okay. You know, you, you remove confounding variables because the control group is going through the same seasonality period as the test group, right? So then when you compare conversion rate on the test group versus conversion rate on the control group, well, everything else is the same except exposure to the ad. So oh. you know, you know what the impact was, right? I'll get it. So you got a control group at the same time running the Facebook group, or you're running something, you know, it's, it's, it's fall, but there's another group that's not exposed to this, but you're tracking them all the same to see how did they perform exactly. versus your other group. That's really cool. I could see that. I could see that going down a rabbit hole but I, I love the idea of that because now oh, you man. know it's deep it's not just it's not just you and oh we sent an email and it converted everybody well they're all converting anyways you just happen to send this group an email but let's not send yes. this group an email and see if they did the same action when an email is a great example because you're doing That's that off okay. your CRM database you can just x off a couple percent of the people and see if they convert too yeah like you there's i mean there's fancy ways to select who you leave off the list to target uh, that's the, that's the design of experiments. I, I, my library is downstairs, but like, I got lots of books on it. That is deep. But in general, the notion of I'm going to pick a few, you know, you can literally sit there and, and say, I'm going to cut out 5% and you get your two 10 sided dice, maybe not a lot of Dungeons and Dragons players on the call right. here, but you know, you find a way use Excel to generate with some random numbers. And you, you, you just, every time you come across too low a number, you say, this guy doesn't get the email, right? It doesn't have to be it doesn't need to be a fancy tool. It doesn't have to be complicated, right? You just have to set up ahead of time the notion you're going to do the test. And then, you know, uh, we could do the math in Excel. It's not yeah. a problem. Yeah. Faco of zero. See what happens. Go from there, right? And second edition. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hey, OG, man. <laughs> Back in the day. Um, so, so, yeah, speaking of Faco and all sorts of interesting, weird, complicated things, um, I love that there's a simplicity to it. Just cut out a few, cut out a few, go from there. Throw down some really gnarly this, um, language from some of these books when you're actually selecting some of these things. Wow. Uh, like how do you, what are some theories around like test groups? I'm just really curious, like how. Yeah. How complicated. So you're gonna want to you're gonna want to stratify your sample. That's that's going the wrong direction. Um, we're gonna want to mirror the exposed group with the control group, right? We're gonna match on all the covariates. Okay. Uh, you're going to want potentially to match on propensity scores, right? Where propensity scores, now we're talking about our causal inference language. Uh, sorry, which is just a, a <laughs> slightly <laughs> different, a slightly different corner of statistics has gained a lot of popularity lately. Uh, so, so 
Uh, you might want to determine the likelihood that people would be exposed to an ad. This is for like post, uh, if I haven't designed an experiment and I want to apply experimental kind of math backwards looking retrospectively, I can do that. I can develop propensity scores on the people who were uh, exposed and say, you know, this is how likely they were to be exposed versus people who weren't. And then I can use that propensity score to uh, reweight the presence in the sample, in the test sample, in the control sample, and I get a, a more causal estimate of what's going on. That's all the good stuff to investigate, look up, and read. Um, what else do we got? Well, design of experiments is usually called DOE, like D period, O period, E period, like Department of Energy, but not. Um, and you're yeah, generally going to be in there too. It's not just like DOE. It's like D O E kind of thing. They do, uh, yeah, they do usually. But, you know, statisticians, right? Like, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's no, not. No, they're no, not I, really I, keen I on the now. market. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Um, so, so what happens there, you know, A-B testing is a very common form of that that was used in a lot of direct response stuff. Yeah. We talked a lot um, about that in marketing, the idea of an A-B test. Yeah, but so the, the joy there is you're saying is A better than B, right? Two copies, presumably both for your same brand, which one works better? You're not losing, you're not giving up all of your marketing on, on either group, right? Assuming you right. like both copies, right? Um, where you fall down a little bit is like, then you really don't get the comparison between everybody got a copy. Right. So to get true incremental impact, you need a control group, which right now digitally, that's usually done with like you throw some money out to a charitable cause that you want to support. And so your control group gets, you know, uh, donate to cancer research or, uh, you know, to the animal shelter. So you can feel good about that money. You know, you're, the opportunity cost there is that you're spending money that on marketing, but it's not marketing your brand, which you gain in exchange, a little bit of charitable work plus um well, tell you me know. about that like what, what's the scenario where you would where you would do that like what does a and b get and then c has okay. the ability to donate or they click a button yeah tell me that experiment yeah so so like uh a b would be um you know i'm 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 selling my uh i don't know my, my annotated uh movie notes on the accountant and uh nice. you know I, I write two copies for it and on the a copy i really focus on uh, uh the art uh critiques and on the B copy, I really talk about the, um, you know, sniper technique critique, right? And I send those both out to the same target. And I'm like, oh, people are really digging the art thing. So I'm going to use that copy, right? It works yeah. better, right? Or maybe do a complicated experiment. And for different targeted groups, you send them A and B. And you're like, oh, well, surprisingly, men who are veterans prefer the art critique stuff. And, and men who uh, are have never been outside in their life and have never fired a gun really like to learn about the sniper position. Right. So um, whatever it is. Right. So uh, the AB is always going to give you that comparison. And for the groups that you've tested on, you're going to know which copy works better, mm -hmm. but you don't know for people who didn't get exposed at all, how much better am I doing? Because mm -hmm. in your designed experiment, everybody got exposed to either A or B. Right. right. So the, the sort of direct contrast is, exposure or unexposed, which you might usually call test control. So, okay. Uh, and, and there, that's just, it gives you a better read on incrementality. All I'm saying is what, what's the modern thing is like, you can't serve up an ad that's just a blank page, <laughs> right? I mean, like people are gonna be like, my internet's broken. Um, but you can serve up an ad for something unrelated to what you're selling. So I'm selling my movie critique or my movie notes. And uh, instead of that, so that'd be the test. My control would be, please put in, you know, um, uh, a save the whales picture, right? Mm -hmm. And it could be a live ad with a link that goes to Greenpeace and you're donating to Greenpeace, or it, it could just be a, don't forget guys, you know, whales are important, yeah. right? But it won't, there's no notion anyone has that that's going to drive conversion uh, towards your business. 
So you feel like those people have not been exposed to your marketing or, you know, you, you can truly believe that whatever conversion rate they have is sort of a natural rate for that targeted group. Gotcha. So then you can see how many people still bought, even though we didn't serve them an ad, we in the retargeting, for instance, right? We didn't retarget them at all. All we did was show them whales. Oh, and instead of Greenpeace, it'd be Sea Shepherd for sure. So okay. Sea <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Thanks for yeah, clarifying. Because um, those guys are badass. Um, <laughs> so don't need to Sea Shepherd. And yet those, you know, what percent still converted, still bought your, your tool at the end of the day? Then you're like, what lift did retargeting have? Otherwise, you, you might be stuck thinking it helped. Let's just keep retargeting. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. That's cool. Uh, and and um, yeah. So uh, when you said match on co, is it covariates? Covariates. 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 Things like covary. Yeah. What what is yeah what is a covariate? Okay. Uh, it is something that varies in relationship with the main thing. So um, people convert or not is the main thing in the scenarios we've been talking about, and a covariate might be uh, gender. Okay. Right. And uh, just given the sample size of the various genders, we'll go with the two. Uh, I, well, three is actually pretty common in digital space because a lot of people haven't been identified in the data available, right? So male, female are unidentified. Um, and if you if it seems that male versus female versus unidentified has a very strong differential effect on, on how good the ad is doing, that's a covariate. And if you're not sure and you want to test it, that's a covariate. Um, does it only become it a covariate does, if there's a, a remarkable effect to it? But in, in one case, men and women are both donating a Sea Shepherd at equal proportions. Then it, does it not get that title of like a covariate? Is it just like a factor or is it still a covariate? Yeah, that's uh, I'm searching my brain. I will tell you that I use it to mean I include it in the analysis to check if there's an effect. Yeah. And that's very common. Any statistician, any analyst is going to talk about it that way. But you're probably right if I go and like read the glossary definition in a textbook, it is something that has an effect. And if it doesn't have an effect, it's not a true covariate, but don't don't sweat that. But, Honestly, but people like you tested to see these, these you're listing it out in your DOE to see if um, right. if this is a factor, right? If this is, wait, not a factor, I keep saying that, but what's yours if it has an effect? If it, uh, it yeah, if it has an effect. So, so this is where, you know, look, statistics was basically some guys who were kind of mathy who invented a bunch of BS vocabulary in like the 1900s and then World War II happened and it became important. Okay. So, so it, it's all kind of like, you know, is it an effect? Well, only if it's statistically significant, right? They borrowed regular everyday English words and tried to give them technical meaning. Yeah. And that leaves us stuck here, right? We're a factor typically uh, in part because of the um, of design of experiments, in part because of the R programming language. Factor actually means a categorical variable to a lot of statisticians. But mm. in the way we're talking about it, everyone would understand that you meant does that have influence over uh, the final outcome or not? Uh, when I say an effect, I mean it's estimated to have some influence as opposed to no effect. It's estimated not to have influence. And then I would talk about a covariate as the the uh, the variable like gender or age or uh, um, you know previous buying behavior. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. To I would call that the covariate, and it may have an effect or it may not have an effect. And then again, then we go back to like normal language use. It might be a factor in what we're doing, or it might not be a factor in what we're doing. Gotcha. I think everyone in the room is going to understand that and be clear. Analysts and statisticians have to be careful. When I say significant, I mean statistically significant. I got to use the whole phrase and define what I mean because I might say significant all the time, right? I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah. What's really cool about you is you actually speak both languages, which is cool. You speak I like try. Human, 
business. And then also you can throw down if some professor of stats was like, well, actually, like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Settle down. <laughs> yeah. down it's okay. <laughs> yeah. I've actually had that conversation with some colleagues. I uh, thank you for that. But you know, like I can only do English. I can't do it in German. I can't do it in Spanish. Right. So there are people who have more languages than me, right? Who can do German technical and German uh, conversational. So just so you know, I'm not the peak. I'm close, but I'm not the peak. Okay. I speak English too. So that's all good. Um, nice. Hey, you know, you mentioned the statistical significance and and I, I was exposed to that a while ago. I don't know who did, but I want to pay it forward. Could you talk to statistical significance and when it comes to marketing experiments, A-B testing, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you the sort of casual meaning because yes. I think it's understandable. Uh, there's some people who I follow. I might have to owe you a spelling on this, but there's a Cassie, Cassie Koza Varoff or something who's a big presence. She's big at Google. She does a lot of this data science, like um, uh, public speaking. And she has a great set of articles on what is what statistical significance really means. But generically, or, or more simply maybe, and, and a little less accurately, what it means is that the evidence we have in front of us, what actually occurred either in the experiment or, or looking at retrospective data, is unlikely to have happened unless there was an impact from this thing, unless the effect was real and systematic. So, so when I say an effect is statistically significant, that just means that it's very unlikely that um, you know we saw this sales bump up here unless it was because of this thing i'm analyzing okay now there's a lot of assumptions to make that literally true mm, gotcha. all the important covariates are included in the analysis is one of the key assumptions right none of the covariates are too highly correlated which means happening at the exact same time as the effect i'm analyzing right and then there's certain uh statistical distributional properties that are you know explainable but i i should have gotten my whiteboard ready and i didn't so um <laughs> Uh, you know, basically, statistical significance just means it's unlikely this would have happened if this effect wasn't real. But unlikely doesn't mean it's impossible. And that's why, um, you know, if you follow statistics at all, there's been this huge uh, spate of studies that have been recalled because people tried to reproduce them. Mm -hmm. They were published because there was a statistically significant effect. A lot of this happened in psychology and social sciences. And then, you know, people try to reproduce them and they cannot do it. Right. So statistical significance is not a, a protector that you found the truth. Hmm. It's just saying it's not likely. But anyone who's ever won in Vegas, right? Anyone who's ever played Dungeons and Dragons and like gotten that one when you really didn't want to or gotten that 20 when you needed it, right? Like uh, knows that something, that one to 20 is a good example, right? Each one only has a 5% chance of occurrence. Mm -hmm. Well, 5% is the level of statistical significance is generally accepted, right? It's, there's only a 5% chance this data would have occurred if this effect wasn't real. Is usually what we call statistically significant. That's an alpha of 0.05, right? But 5% happens all the time. I mean, there's events that only have a 5% chance of occurrence that you run into dozens of times a day, right? Mm. Um, so, so statistical significance doesn't mean as much as a lot of people think it does, which is why I'm babbling so long about it. But it, is, it can be important. And its value is in quantifying how uncertain your conclusion is. Well, and I, I want to bring it up because um, sometimes when I've seen marketers do experiments with A-B testing on an email and, you know, say, we're going to carve out 5%, you know, 5% get this, 5% get that. And then systems like Pardot can automatically send out all the rest of the emails to the winner. Yep. And it'll do it like, okay, this one had 10, this one had 11, this one's the winner, you know? 
Um, or we'll see experiments where people will run it and, you know, they get, um, you know, eight more on this one than that one. And there was only 20 experiments run and it just, and they're like, well, it's more, but it, it's like, ah, oh, is that, I think sometimes people are running experiments and they don't have enough sample size. They're not, yeah. they don't have enough solution to look at. So when they, these tiny little results happen, they just assume that because more voted this way than that way, then it, it, it was a winner, you know? And that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that analytically, right? 11 versus 10. But I feel exactly what you said. Like, that's one more person out of only 10. But that's that's not a win. That's just like, wrong you know. With that analytically? If I just want to make a decision based on that one? Well, uh, what I would say is, okay, if I don't have any feel, any prior information about which is better, one got 11, one got 10, 11 is better than 10, <laughs> right? I mean, that right. is that is true. What, so where the statistics comes in, though, is it lets you say, okay, but this is uncertain, right? Not every email that got opened actually got read. Uh, maybe somebody was reading their email and meant to pay attention, but their kid screamed at them because the Zoom call was broken for class and they ran away. And, you know, like there's things that happen that are stochastic, meaning random, that aren't under our control. So that's where the statistics come in. That's where you get statistical significance. And that's why it matters. It says, I'm going to account for the variability in response. And I'm going to use the number of tests I did and the variability of response I'm seeing. And I'm going to see if this but could be due to random chance alone. Got it. Right. So, yes, statistical significance is the calculation that does that. But like in that exact circumstance, what I would say is, you know, uh, in addition to is there enough testing here to believe this effect is really different? We actually can have the other problem. Well, I've got I'm sending out 10,000 emails. So I tested 5,000 and 5,000. Well, then, like, you know one person different could still be statistically significant because the sample size is so big. Well, I'm going to tell you, I mean, I'm not going to tell you to run the one that didn't get more votes unless I just like it better. Right. right? If you've got, uh, you know, 1000 converts here and 999 over here. Well, still the statistics might say the 1000 is statistically significant. It's only one more person. Right. But would it not, wouldn't it not say that that's significant because it, it depends on the, the, the difference between the results tied into the, number of samples like if you've got a huge sample and the result is so tiny couldn't that wouldn't that always fail so so the bigger the sample yeah the smaller the smaller, smaller. a difference you need okay. for it to be statistically significant so that's what that's what the power of sample size is it's like you might you know people are very concerned uh in clinical trials or in marketing like i want to show i have an impact so i want to test enough that even if the impact is small i can still detect it Got it. But if the impact is small enough, it doesn't matter to the business, right? right? I mean, let's say it's real. It's statistically significant that you get a uh, thousand instead of nine hundred ninety-nine conversions. Fine, but but at the end of the day, you won't notice the difference in revenue when you blast that out to all ten thousand people in your your pool, right? Or it'll be so small. I mean, it's real revenue. You should capture it, but it's not going to matter. No one gets an extra bonus because of that, right? And that's a great point with the statistical significance because now it makes sense if, if the sample size is so large. I only need a little bit of a result to be better. And then it's significant, but not as important to the business. So that's a good comparison. Whereas the, the extreme, the other extreme counts too, where you didn't test enough people. So maybe you're making decisions that aren't necessarily the right one. Maybe if there's a bigger right. sample size, it would, it would go in the other direction. I don't know. Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it. So what do you do? Well, this is where we get into the, the like deeper end of uh, power or power and sample size calculations and, and design of experiments. You guess ahead of time how variable response is going to be, preferably by using an old data set. 
And then the statistician or the, the designer of the experiment says, okay, how big an effect do you expect? Mm. Okay, how certain do you want to be it's real? And you know, how how willing are you to miss if it's real? And those three numbers together determine what the sample size is. Or you come out at the other angle and you say, I can only afford to test 200 people. How big an effect do I need to get before I can tell, right? But again, a statistician, you know, like uh, you can go to Russ Lentz's webpage and get a Java applet that does all that for you. If you, if you can gather the numbers and type them in, you can get your sample size, right? So, so knowing that there's a trade-off there and knowing that there's a problem is actually more powerful than knowing how to run the calculations, right? Like I don't remember how to do that stuff. It involved non-central t-tests and all kinds of, I don't know, there's like operation characteristic curves. I really wish I'd brought this textbook up. I could show you the page it's on, um, but I can go to the webpage and you know, right. put it the numbers in. Right. It's easy. Yeah, that's why there's Java. <laughs> that is why there's. That's why we use the computer, right? Right. Yeah. There's only no abacus back there. You need one on your wall, right? <laughs> I actually have a slide rule, man. All my good toys are somewhere else. I uh, I had a slide rule. <laughs> I'll be back. Talk more. We'll, next one, you just wall decorated with ancient math tools. <laughs> that'd be that. Yes, absolutely. There'll be like Euclidean geometry and a slide rule, and all people yeah, will know exactly. what they are. It's gonna be awesome. Maybe a targeting computer if I can find one. Newton's um, apple. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hanging. Yes. Hanging there. Bronzed. Well, well dude, dude, I feel like I could talk to you about this stuff forever. This, you, you are really helping me see the forest from the trees with some of these concepts. My next question for you is like, who are you? Like, take me back in time. Little Ted days. Did you always oh, just man. love math? And did you ever see yourself go in this direction? Like, you know, what did you want to be when you're growing up? Where'd you grow up? All that good stuff. Yeah, man. Uh, I think you're going to see some relation to the accountant in my childhood stories. So okay. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Nice. Um, um, and so I grew up in Tampa, Florida. Okay. Uh, I don't know anyone out there knows Tampa, Florida. Somebody does. Uh, two, I-275 in beers. My parents sold the house just last year. Um, you know, interestingly, uh, my mother was an attorney. My dad dropped out of college and worked a steel mill and then some other jobs and then some other jobs and was a demolition contractor most of my most what of my contrast, life. man. Yeah. To your question about math, not really. I mean, you know, look, uh, it sounds like bragging, but I was I was a smart kid, right? I was gifted. Uh, I read a lot. I, I I went to a magnet program for high school where they busted everyone from all over the county. And, you know, we went there and I took all AP classes. Wow, cool. uh, and I, like most gifted kids, was a little different maybe you know i did play dungeons and dragons well uh a little dungeons and dragons a lot of reading and and martial arts i uh started a young age in a taekwondo school and then like when that wasn't convenient for my parents i did some okinawan karate and then you know i kind of quit in eighth grade but i ninth grade i went off to high school and i started again with some guys uh a little more seriously you know by the time you're in high school you can kind of really do the thing right um (laughs) Right, because little kid stuff is little kid stuff, right? Um, so, so that was actually—I mean, gosh—in high school, that was six hours a week, three or four days a week, going in for an hour, hour and a half. It's a good, punch a good practice right there, yeah. It was, and you know, it uh, that actually happened because back when I was a, a little kid, um, my parents basically were like, "You can't just sit around and read all day. You need some exercise." Mm-hmm. And it was swimming, uh, martial arts, or dance. And I'm like, I have no idea how I picked martial arts, but I just was too lazy to ever change, right? Like, you know, you yeah. build a social circle around it. You know? So that's what I was doing for fun. Um, and still, math was definitely my worst subject, okay? Like, yeah. I got, like, a scholarship for the uh, an essay I wrote. I can't remember what he was even on, but in 
Uh, my junior year, I wrote an essay and the junior year had an essay contest and my English teacher submitted it. And I ended up, you know, the Rotary Club or something gave me a scholarship. Wow. Really writing and history were my, my things. Um, and uh, Kind of like your mom, you I'm know, sure, I was, right? With the attorney, the history and the, yeah. I actually had to ask my mom recently. I had this very clear memory a couple times. I had waited too long to start a paper. And I had like a bunch of written on the bus, handwritten notes for the paper. And I had, I have terrible handwriting, always have. Uh, so my, my teachers asked me to type all my papers so they could read them. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, mom, I can't, you know, I can't type this fast enough. And, uh, my mom who started life as a, a secretary and then an insurance adjuster and then became an attorney actually right before I was born, um, could type like 60 words a minute. And I have clear memories of her, some high school nights, uh, having me read the paper to her. Cause of course she couldn't read either <laughs> typing about as fast as I could read like live dictation. Um, so anyway, yeah, she helped a lot. And wow. I actually had to ask her, did you write the paper I won the award for? Right. <laughs> did I have like some crib notes and then you edited it or did I actually write that? And she said, I, I don't remember even doing that stuff. So I'm sure you wrote it. So according to my mom, I was a good writer, but actually maybe it literally was her and, and she was just ghost writing for me. Um, man, wrap all that up. Right. So graduate high school. Uh, I went to the state school. I went from Tampa. I was in high school in Tampa. I went to University of Florida which is a fantastic, fantastic place. At the time, of course, I was like, oh, I didn't get into Rice or uh, uh, some other place that I'd put farther away. Because, you know, like a lot of 16, 17 year old boys, I uh, was 17, I guess, by then. Um, I just want to get out of that. You know, like, I want freedom, right? Uh, but it was awesome for me because I landed at a place where a lot of my high school went. Uh, and UF, you know, um, is on a lot of the party school lists. So, yeah, so I could have a lot a of fun. Team, you got party time, like great, oh, man. great choice, man. It was, it was. and back then that was football team. So yeah, that's awesome. Where'd you go to school? Little uh, two, there's Gordon college and Riviera college, little, little colleges in new England, you know? <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh. so they play lacrosse. Was there a squash team? Like, what do you do in new England? for? Yeah, I know. Right. Soccer. <laughs> Soccer. Soccer's a great sport. It's great. Maybe. But yeah, so we did have football and, and I, I loved it. Uh, right. you know, I, so high school I had taken, uh, a bunch of AP classes, you know, and like I came in with almost a full year's worth of credit. Jesus. So my first semester was like, well, that was the magnet program I went to. Everyone who came into that program did the same thing. Um, uh, you know, that first semester, I'm like talking to an advisor, like, what do you want to do? I was like, I have no idea. Uh, what subjects do you want to take? I'm like, well, I want to take a fencing class, Spanish mm -hmm. conversation class. And I really think I'll take the next math class because I might need it depending on what my major is. Right. And I, it was the strangest look I've ever gotten. They're like, well, that's pretty concrete. Okay, I'll sign you up for those classes. And I took, I mean, it was like an 11-hour uh, semester to start. Um, and that kind of defined how I went through college, right? So you're talking about like, was I a math guy? Still not a math guy. I picked wow. history as my major. I took fencing. I joined like every martial arts club on campus because that had been my social circle up until then. And I wasn't about to change that. Uh, and, um, you know, I, uh, that's, that's what I did. Uh, so I came home from college that semester. I had to pick my major early because of the, all the credit I brought in. And my dad's like, so history major, right? We're going on a walk after dinner. And he's like, you know, it's your college experience, but I don't really get the impression you picked history because you love history, just like you need to pick something. And I just don't feel like you're going to be very employable, right? And gave me the what for on history. Gave, gave so, you the worker what for, right? Yeah. Ex exactly. So we get back and like he picks up the mail of the mailbox and I've got some mail. And it's from the economics department. And it's basically like, hey, we noticed you have a high GPA. Oh, I must have snuck in 
before I got this letter, microeconomic, you know, one of the intro economics classes yeah, yeah. is general education. I'm like you got a good grade in our class. You should consider joining our department as a major, like literally just like a form letter. Wow. I was like, Hey dad, what do you think about economics? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I became an economics major like the next week when I went back to school. Um, still taking basically history and economics classes. They like recruited you. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were, they recruited me. I, yes. Uh, me and 5,000 oh, or sure, 10,000 other students like, that semester. That's impressive. They did like internal marketing to get people in their, in the major. That's cool. Oh man. That economics department had a thing. They had a couple star professors that for all the big gen ed classes would record their morning lecture and then just replay them. Right. <laughs> so like they were educating, I mean, you know, UF's a big school. I think undergrad was 30 or 40,000 back then. Like they're educating huge swaths of this 30,000 uh, person population with just two or three professors and, and a video camera. Right. So like they were smart. I mean, you know, economics, right. They were he was doing a lot with few resources They're and uh, whatever they charged for you to watch the video recording. Ho! I will say university of Florida was a cheap place to go to school back then. Okay, I, cool. I mean, it really was, especially for in-state tuition. I still think they were actually very reasonably priced and okay, well, it was a great time. Enough. Everybody should go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, sorry. Uh, so, so becoming an economics major, uh, and really math isn't even on my radar. Like it's just not, uh, what happened is I'm living with some guys, they're guys I knew in high school who also went to the magnet program, who also got their full year of credit from AP tests. And they're all like physicists, engineers, and mathematicians. It was really it was like two electrical engineers and a physicist. And they're having a conversation in the dorm room about their linear. By the way, sorry to interrupt. It, like, no, it hundred percent. Two physicists. It should have been a joke. Kind of was. I mean, you know, I mean, like, look, I'm having a great time. They're having a great time. We weren't the cool kids on campus, right? Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, okay. Um, and you'll see, you'll hear more about that in a second, right? So, so they're having this conversation about linear algebra, which is truly a fascinating topic. I took it, and I'm like, what? Bewildering. You did? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Uh, you know, but that was it. They were talking about. It. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. Well, look, the economics major I was in was like uh, liberal arts economics. You got to take half your classes or gen ed. I'm like, I can take a math class, and I did. I was just like, I'll take linear algebra, which I don't know. It was theoretical linear algebra. I think it was a 300 level class or something. I signed up. Well, I walk into this class and in the back of the class is a girl I know from a martial arts club, actually, Alana. And next to her is a girl I don't know who I think is very attractive named Amber. And I go and sit next to him because what are you going to do, right? And Alana are chatting. And then yeah. <laughs> it's a math class, guys. It's a math class. Yeah, okay? No, I, I did computer science and a lot of math and that's a rare, right? It was a rare. Right? So I sit, I, I sit next to these girls and like I said, I know one of them already. So we're talking. Uh, and when it's time for homework groups, we're all huddled together already. So I have a homework group with these girls and like two of the sorority sisters. And it turns out these four girls are like studying math to become high school math teachers. Huh. And they're going to take math for the next like three years. And we had a great time. We did some homework together. I got to know some people. So like, I actually literally became a math major now, added math as a second major, just because I kept taking classes to hang out with these girls. <laughs> okay. No joke. That's how cool I was. I, I was I was chasing skirts in math class. <laughs> well, you know, hey, motivation in many different shapes and sizes and ways. And um, you know, and I meant, you know, funny, linear algebra. I actually liked linear algebra, but where my mental brain just got maybe as a teacher, I'll blame the teacher abstract algebra just hated oh, it. oh yeah yeah hey, linear was like cool i got some matrices and i'm looking at my notebook now though i'm like well what elvish did i write during that class i don't even remember why i was doing it me um, too honestly me too yeah there's some intense math going on 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, got to abstract algebra. If I hadn't had that homework group to pull me through. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Cause I didn't really need the math major. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Nothing wrong with an economics degree. Um, so we got to speed this up. Sorry. I apparently like to talk about myself. Uh, no, the, um, it's, it's a, you are basically the accountant. So how does the accountant then become the statistician, the, the analyst, the data scientist? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I didn't, same thing as college. I didn't really intend to, right? I tried to get a job after I got my uh, bachelor degree. Couldn't. So I went to grad school because, you know, I, they were paying me $1,200 a month. That was better than nothing. Yeah. Um, and I did pick math at that point, but I went to a math program that was intended to be a master's exit and was like, you can study engineering, economics, mathematics, and uh, statistics. Yeah. And literally I took like the intro uh, engineering classes, the intro grad level math class, you know, mm-hmm. like I just yeah. was from the smorgasbord, right? And when I was done with that, just two years later, um, I needed a job. And I landed at a medical device company that was like, oh, you know SAS? SAS is a programming language or statistical programming environment. Gotcha. Really big in pharma, some finance. Um, and I was like, yeah, I learned it for a class. Like, okay, well, we need some help. <laughs> and I went to work for $12 an hour with a master's degree in math in Indianapolis doing SAS stuff. Uh, and you know, we did some cool stuff, man. But like, that was like math, like, like, uh, we were designing a consumer product and there was a point where we had developed this complicated algorithm and they were like, um, we can't fit all of your parameters in the firmware. We need to reduce the precision of these numbers. And then like, we designed our custom floating point format that was smaller than the regular double precision floating point format, like, like just math. Um, but what happened is I was doing statistics also designing experiments for laboratory use. That was something I learned in school, and then I got some actual practice. And then I needed to move up to Chicago because my my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, got a job in Chicago. Gotcha. And I was like, well, if I can't get a job in Chicago, I can't get it. I mean, I can get a job in Chicago, yeah, right? right? You can't get a job anywhere at that point. Come on. Right, exactly. Exactly. So that's when I made the move to analytics. I had this background in statistical or scientific programming, statistics, and I got a job doing still an R&D and not, not marketing, but uh, doing work with consumer um, taste testing results and matching that to train test tasting results. So that got me into the world of like, yeah, I'm doing statistics and, and math, but the goal is a business decision and not, um, you know, that like, does the small computer on the consumer product work like the big computer, right? Like it's just a different, uh, a level of mathiness. Um, it got me into real messy data before I had lab data, which is messy enough, believe me. Yeah. But, but now we're like talking about survey data and, and, uh, you know, notebooks that have been transcribed into Excel and then passed through another system, right? Like the real messiness of real world data. The, um, and then from there, when I was blasting my resume out to get to Chicago, uh, a marketing mix boutique consulting firm had gotten a hold of it and they called me up and recruited me cause they were doing a great job selling and they needed some more people basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I went to work for Ross Boy Link, who, who in certain circles is a little bit famous. He, he was running a company called Marketing, uh, Marketing Analytics Inc. at the time. Okay. And uh, he promptly sold to Nielsen. Wow. And I'm sure that's because he hired me. And Nielsen's like, we want Ted. <laughs> but actually, uh, he, sold, he, he sold to Nielsen. I went to work for Nielsen. And then, you know, when you're at Nielsen, you get access to, like, all the this data on everything, company. right? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's an academy company. People go and learn a lot there. And, and I did. So that's really how I became um, a marketing analytics guy, right? I started on the mathiest of math stuff that one can do for a living that's not going to the moon. But I, I, you know, in about 10 or 12 years, transitioned over to helping businesses make decisions using the math and statistics 
Um, but with all that context of there's a real world, you know, uh, just because it's statistically significant doesn't mean it actually has impact, right? All of that stuff. Yeah. 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 Right. Where we all make a living if we can. So, um, that's really the journey, right? Like I spent a long time at Nielsen, just did a stint in pharma. Um, and, uh, through that all that, that like quantitative foundation and statistical programming foundation has let me be effective and help people combined maybe with a little bit of that, like, you know, I liked history. So I know some stories I like writing so people understand what I'm writing about. Right. Yeah. That certainly helps translate from the one world to the other. Got it, man. It's wild, wild ride. You know, um, we're going to run out of time. Like I, we literally need to schedule the next podcast because, and, and I, you know, normally I'm great at managing the clock, but like, I was just like, let's, for some reason, for the guy that took statistics only to fail it or D it out or something terrible because I wasn't paying attention or something like I had such a great conversation with that. Um, and you're actually, you're consulting, but you're also looking for your next role right now. Is that still correct? Yeah. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. I, um, I am fairly late stage with a few firms that I'm going to leave nameless because it's not, not all done yet. Uh, so I might not be looking for long. Um, but yes, I am looking for full-time employment and I'm probably closing out my consulting practice, right. but who knows? Uh, we'll see. And you know, the thing is I have been networking a lot. So if uh, anyone reaches out, I might, even if I'm already employed, I, I have a few people I know who are still looking. So if, uh, anyone interested should get a hold of me. Up, you know, or check in at least to see, because hearing what you were saying, so where can people connect with you? Where do you want them to reach out? You know, LinkedIn platforms, you want to throw out email? What, what kind of things do you want to throw out there so people can reach out? Yeah, LinkedIn's really the best. Uh, we can probably add a direct link somewhere, right? But uh, my name is Ted Space Lorenzen, and I don't think there's too many of me on LinkedIn. So uh uh, let me look at the picture. Yeah, the picture's pretty up to date. It looks about like this. <laughs> yep, up to date. Fantastic, man. Well, hey, you know, thank you for coming on here. Um, LinkedIn will definitely link to that. Um, people, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna send this. You know, if by the time this thing airs, you aren't scooped. We need to talk, right? Because otherwise, I got 30 people I need to send this video to, and then they can all battle royale and see what happens, right? They can all roll a a 1d20 and see. And see nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's been great man nice. thanks for coming on here really it's been fun hey uh thanks for the time and i'm sorry to stretch it so long i hope no, uh, no, hope no. someone gets some value here and this was great I, mean, I learned a ton and for those people listening if you learned something and i freaking know you did because my brain is smoking and i've got two pages of notes over here front and back then share this with someone be a thought leader by just putting a takeaway that you learned on linkedin tag ted tag myself tag myself We'll start a little conversation. That's thought leadership. That's how you do it. Um, and with that, man, Ted, you're a rock star. Uh, let's be best buds. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Definitely, Casey. Thank you. Awesome. For those people listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time. 